So here's the thing, entrepreneurs, leaders, salespeople, we all want to create consistent, repeatable, and scalable ways to grow our business and our income. And we want to do it better, faster, and more seamlessly. Why? So we can actually enjoy our lives, take vacations, and spend the quality time we want with the people that we love. How do we do all this without spending a fortune or running ourselves ragged? That's the big question, and this show is dedicated to the answer. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I have, I have wanted this guy on my show. Matter of fact, we had it scheduled, I think, for March 19th. And then I got a text saying, you know, this little pandemic thing we might be experiencing probably is going to stop me from driving over to your office. So here it is, from Hotwire to Zillow to Dot .LA to Picasa to a SPAC. I see him every time I turn on the TV, CNBC Financial, Bloomberg somewhere. Spencer Raskoff, what's up, man? Hey, Tom. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, so we were joking offline, like I've got my bobblehead and I think he's got his bobblehead too for my friends that are watching on video. Oh yeah, I like it. Father, Father's Day present from the kids. I love this thing. It's here. That's his, okay. So my team actually built these things for me and I think they became probably the most kicked punched thing on the planet. Cause it, if you hit it, it should have said, make your damn phone calls, make your damn phone calls, call your past clients, do something like that. So, so Spence, I started thinking about, uh, just all the things I wanted to cover with you. So this will be, I just want to go through a bunch of random things. I, I was, I was sharing with, uh, with Tristan, my videographer offline. I said, you know, Spencer's he's done this and this and this and this, and his background is this and this and this and this, and, you know, having dinner with you and your wife and, you know, hearing more and more of the stories of your life and what you've experienced. And, and Tristan said, he's a Renaissance man. He's a Renaissance man. I don't know if you've been, I said, okay, I said Leonardo de Raskoff, right? We're, I don't, I have not been called that, but I like it. I like the ring to it. Yeah. So, I mean, so, yeah. so I just want to jump into a bunch of stuff and I want to start with uh, the announcement yesterday. Uh, so wherever, whenever you're listening to this, my friends, Zillow buying showing time. Now you left as CEO when, so I'm assuming you knew about this stuff early. Yeah. So I left, uh, I think I left to see it about a year and a half ago. I mean, I, I've known Showing Time for a long time. It was a company sure. that, um, you know, we, we had some some conversation. I'll have to be a little careful about exactly what I share here, but uh, let's just say I wasn't that surprised to see the news. Yes. Uh, and I think it's a great acquisition. It makes a ton of sense. Um, uh, it's a big price. Five hundred million is a lot for a prop tech company. Obviously, I don't know what their what their business is under the hood, but I was. Um, very pleased with the strategic fit because it allows you know look it if if properly integrated into Zillow and Trulia, it will allow a buyer to schedule a showing, right? And you know I mean that's that's everything, right? Yeah. And I can imagine I, I'm not exactly sure what Zillow is going to do with it, but I can imagine um, a buyer scheduling a showing without talking to an agent, and then showing up and having a premier agent there to meet them. And, you know, the lead conversion at that point is going to be so much higher and it's a great user experience for the buyer. It's going to be great for premier agents. And obviously Zillow's business is shifting towards this, this business model called flex where they get paid um, a portion of the commission at closing by the agent to whom they referred the lead. So showing time makes a ton of sense for all those reasons. I, uh, you and I are on the same exact page when, uh, when I got the call saying, Hey, this is what's going to be announced. I was like, thank you. Had, thanks for the heads up and letting me know the challenge was. I was scheduled to do 
literally all day and all night conference calls and, and Zoom sessions with my clients. So this morning I shot a live video and it, and it blew up pretty quickly. But what I said to the, the audience, and I want your take on this, is I said, it, it just makes sense. It's the natural next connection. It's you're going farther and farther down the bottom of the funnel. And now you get that opportunity in real time to book your appointment, to get it all scheduled. Of course it makes sense. And yet so many people in the industry are fearful of Zillow. And at one point you're fearful of you. Um, so I'm so, such a happy, friendly guy. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, you look, are. I saw the comments on the Inman article, for example, right. you know, and it, it always happens. I mean, every time there's an article written about Zillow anywhere, real yeah. deal, Inman, you name it, you know, the haters come out. Yeah. Um, I used to, you know, I, a long time ago, I used to be in there in the comments, you know, yes. fighting hand to hand combat, defending the company. You know, at this point, I'm not affiliated with the company anymore at all, um, although I'm still a big shareholder. Um, I, I mean, I like a lot of that um, fear and mistrust is, is, is you know, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be directed at whoever the category leader is. There right. was a time when it was directed at, you know, at, at other companies, but long before there was a Zillow. Um, yep. So it, I look at it the same thing. And I actually said on this live show, I said, hey, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when independents got mad at franchises for beginning. And then franchises like Century One got mad when Remax changed the financial model, and then when Keller Williams changed the financial model, and now that EXP, is funny, then, right? I mean, like even even when like when Redfin came along and the franchisors right. were complaining about that disruption, you know, mo many of those folks were disruptors, and then along yes. comes Compass and Redfin's complaining about it. It's like, well, hold on, five minutes ago you were a disruptor, and then along comes DXP, right? And then they're disrupting, and it's like, you know, there's always somebody else coming down the road. I, I actually, it's such a big industry, and there are so many ways to make money that um, I always kind of, you know, internally laugh at the people that you, that spend a lot of time fetching. Whether it used to be on Active Rain, remember a million years ago when I it was do. on Active Rain, and then it was on Twitter, and then it's in the comments on Inman or or wherever um, about all this stuff instead of just focusing on themselves and their clients and finding ways to make money on their own. You just put a bow on exactly what my whole message was. Like Zillow's going to Zillow along. So is Redfin. So is Compass. So is DXP. So is Remax. Everybody's going to. The question is, what are you going to do? Right. And that was, that was really the central theme of my message of businesses, innovation and marketing. Get over it. Right. Let's move forward. So I want to talk about a bunch of stuff today, but I want to hit you with your podcast, right? Office hours. Um, you and I sat together once in, uh, in the Zillow Tower in Seattle, and I asked you the same question, but I thought it'd be fun to ask it to you now because you've done so many more interviews. But maybe share with everybody before I ask the question, what was the origin behind your podcast and, and like, why are you doing this? So the, it's funny. I, I haven't thought about what the origin was for, for a long time, but um, the origin was pretty selfish initially. I'd say it came from two things. Uh, First of all, I was a first-time CEO at Zillow. You know, my first company, Hotwire, I was co-founder, but I wasn't the CEO. And I found myself as a first-time CEO at Zillow trying to find ways to learn. And the company was scaling and growing. And, and I was, you know, I was trying to figure it all out. I mean, we all pretend that we have it all figured out, but, but we don't. And, um, uh, and so I thought to myself, how can I get, you know, 15 minutes or 30 minutes with Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook and Satya Nadella at Microsoft and Dick Costello at, at Twitter and all these luminaries and Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn, these people who are running huge companies who I respect. I know I'll start a podcast. And, you know, and it's amazing the doors that it opens. I see it now on the other end where I get, sure. you know, invited to be on a podcast from a 
college student or a real estate agent or, you know, or you name it. And I'm sharing my knowledge with that person and they're benefiting and their listeners are benefiting. But anyway, it started off a little bit selfishly of how can I hack mentorship? How can I hack access to these people so I can learn? And, and then the second motivation was, um, you know, when I would speak with peers and, and others, um, you know, they, uh, uh, it, it, I just thought it would be valuable to let others be a fly on the wall. You know, like I'd have a conversation with someone like you, Tom, and, and, you know, we'd be having coffee in, in a conference room and I'd be thinking like, wow, a lot of other people would benefit from hearing this conversation. And why don't I turn on the lights and provide that type of access to them? Did it come natural for you? Yes, I think it did because I consider myself a journalist. Um, you know, I was editor of the high school newspaper. I thought I was going to be a journalist. I, I worked summer uh, summer as a reporter at Bloomberg when I was in college. Um, when Mike Bloomberg, long before he was the mayor um, of right. New York and before he was a presidential candidate, he was the CEO of Bloomberg, and he sat ten feet away from me when he was the CEO. And uh, I I did the next summer at NBC News in LA. Um, and so uh, you know, I thought I was going to be a journalist and. Twitter lets us all be journalists, actually. I consider myself you know, a reporter, a journalist, a, a publisher. And so, yeah, podcasting is just an extension of that. And, and long before there was podcasting or Twitter, I was active on, on blogs, on Blogspot, right. on Active Rain, and you know, long before there was a medium, et cetera. And now I am a publisher, actually. I started a new service called .LA. <laughs> We're going to definitely talk about that, which I'm a so, so I'm an official journalist now. But yeah, I, I, I like learning. I like teaching. And, um, and podcasting is part of that. I think it's great that people get the origin story and we will talk about dot uh, LA, which is I'm, I'm I'll, I'll dare. I'll, I'll just say this. I'm obsessed with, it's one of the, one of the few emails dot uh, LA housing wire are, are just a daily read for me and sometimes multiple times. And then Ivy Zellman as an example, but back to the question of podcasting. So how many, how many CEOs or, or these, these luminaries, these legends of, of, of the industry have you now interviewed approximately? Oh gosh, probably. I think we have like 60 or 70 episodes. So 60, 70 episodes, he's now Googling it really fast to see. So, so the question becomes, if you could synthesize for, for my audience, what are the three, four, five things that you picked up on? What are, the, what are the five, six things that you're like, this is really what I got from it. And obviously it's going to be at different stages of, of your career and your growth, but there's got to be a bunch of standout things that really like are how you operate. And, and I will, I will tell you and your listeners a, a little secret that I haven't announced yet, but I'm working on a book that is exactly this, Tom. Um, Outstanding. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing my second book right now, which is basically lessons from my office hours podcast. And it's management leadership lessons that I've learned from the podcast and also just from my career. Um, so a couple of things that have, have jumped out at me from, um, you know, lessons in particular from the office hours podcast. I'd say the first is the importance of repetitive communication. If you're a leader, and, um, you know, what I mean by that is like, if you're trying to catalyze an organization in a particular direction, you need to keep hammering home the couple points, the two or three points over and over again, cross-platform. So mm -hmm. an example from my prior experience would be when Zillow moved from just selling ads to buying and selling houses. I had to try to catalyze the organization internally to move in that direction. And so whether it was in Slack or in email, in company meetings, or um, making sure that my proxies, kind of my direct reports and, and their direct reports were, were properly messaged and communicating and always hitting the same messaging points of, 
this is why we're doing it. This is what it means to the consumer. This is what it means to our A real estate agent partners. This is what it's going to mean to you as an employee. It's that constant repetitive communication. Um, and, um, you know, that's a common theme that comes through in all of the interviews that I've done with, with other leaders. Um, one, one comes to mind, the, the, the new CEO of FAIR, which was an episode from a couple months ago. Um, Scott Painter. You know, uh, the the new one, the one that re- replaced oh, Scott, um, 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 forgetting his name right now, of course, Bradley, uh, uh, Brad Stewart. Yes. And, um, you know, so so Scott, who's a great founder, had built uh, a really interesting company at FAIR, but it faltered and um, it had become a turnaround. And Brad took over FAIR. And, um, you know, he talks about in the episode, like, how do you take over, especially during the pandemic, a turnaround? And how do you do a turnaround remotely? where you still haven't even really met your employees. And he talks a lot about, uh, you know, the importance of, of employee communication and trying to get people to, you know, to see the big vision and also see the, um, you know, see the, the, the specifics and, and the way to do that is to over-communicate. Um, you know, other key themes, oh gosh, um, uh, you know, Sachin Adela's episode, the CEO of Microsoft talks again, a lot about corporate culture. Um, so, so much of what I write and what I, talk about is the importance of employees and, and proper motivation. I mean, great people, properly motivated, build great products that attract huge audience that generate revenue and profit and shareholder value. So that's like a chain. It starts with the yes. people, right? Yeah. And say, Hey, Spencer, say it again. Yeah. That was, I mean, sure. I think you probably said that a thousand times. I, I, I have, but, but yeah. So, it, I mean, I should tattoo it on my arm or something. So great people, great people, properly motivated, build great products that attract a huge audience and generate revenue, profits. And then finally, the very last step is shareholder value. And if you think of that as a chain of events, like if you, if you start in the middle of it, like many people do, they say like, hey, let's build a business model that will generate a lot of revenue. And they don't start with the foundation, which is the people and the motivation. It'll, it'll go awry. And, um, you know, or if you just start at the very end, you know, just focusing on building shareholder value and you don't even think about building a product that generates audience and revenue. So basically the business model itself and the, and the, and the value prop that the product provides, then the, the thing will, will go awry as well. So, so in, the, in the Microsoft episode, Sacha talks about how when he took over Microsoft, he had to reboot a, I don't know what it was, 300,000 employee company, a huge right. company, a huge global company. And it starts with the people. And, you know, he, he, he tells the story about, um, actually, I don't remember if this in the podcast or if, if it just happened, you know, to me, but I'll tell the story that, that happened to me with, with Sacha Nadella. So we were at a, um, dinner of Seattle tech executive, Seattle tech CEOs, like a 10 or 15 person dinner that was put together, I think by Madrona, which was one of the top venture ca- is one of the top venture capital firms in Seattle. And, you know, it's the CEOs of Expedia and Microsoft and Zillow and, and a number of other Seattle tech companies. And we're, and, and the, the reason the dinner was convened was to discuss how to compete with all the Bay Area companies that were opening Seattle offices. You know, Facebook's here now and Dropbox is here now and Google's here now and they're hiring all our people. You know, right. and we, we Seattleites got to stick together. What are we going to do about it? And that sounds a know, little like the showing time uh, Zillow conversation once again. Sorry, just yes. <laughs> Funny how it happens in every industry. See, see, for me, it reminds me a little bit of like uh, the scene in was it Godfather Part Two or Part Three, where like all the families come together for the meeting. Right. You know, that's that's <laughs> right. So, exactly. so all the Seattle tech families got together and and we're like, oh, you know, let's talk about innovative recruiting strategies and and compensation practices and you know how can we 
you know, start um, keeping more University of Washington graduates here in Seattle and not lose them to the Bay Area and all this recruit, recruit, recruit stuff. And Sacha, he's like, you know, you guys, you're totally off base on all of this. Instead of focusing on recruiting, we should focus on employee engagement. If I could just get the 300,000 employees at Microsoft to go from being, you know, 50% engaged to 60% engaged, if I can just get them to lean forward in their chair a little bit, right. to work a little smarter, work a little harder, care a little bit more about my company, oh my God, the explosion of productivity and innovation that, that we could achieve. And this has nothing to do with recruiting. Let's just focus on the people we already have yeah. and motivation. And that, I mean, I've had only a couple moments in my career where like the total, you know, light bulb went off and that was one of them. (laughs) So, I mean, I can see it even, even as you're telling the story, I I can see it. So, so I love the great people, right? Uh, Properly motivated, build great, like that, that whole chain is, is brilliant and employee engagement, no doubt. Is there, is there one last one? Cause I've got so many things I want to ask you about, but this is, this is gold right now. So keep going. Um, oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, you're writing a book on it, right? Coming I, soon. Yeah. <laughs> so, <yes. laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot, there's, there, there are a lot of, of lessons to mine from it. Um, I mean, a, a, another common theme is just the power of information transparency. So yeah. I'm thinking of good RX, for example, where the founder and CEO of good RX talks about how, how frustrating it was personally to not be able to know you know, what prescription drug prices were at different drugstores. You, you, know, yes. you go to one CVS and you get one price, you go to another Bartels, you get a different price and, and Walgreens, you get a third price and sometimes even different stores within the same chain and just providing that information transparency. And that's been a common theme through my career, whether sure. it was Hotwire and Expedia providing information transparency in travel or Zillow, of course, providing information transparency in real estate and, and so many of these successful companies and, and the companies run by founders that I tend to talk to in my podcast have that theme running through their business. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, so let's go back to, you know, your, your writing as a journalist for Bloomberg, then you're off to, it's, I think you said CBS or NBC in, in Los Angeles. And now here you are back living in Los Angeles and forming this company dot LA that I mentioned earlier, I am obsessed with. Tell them about dot LA. What was your vision? And, and, you know, we're only what a, a, a year and a, a couple year. months it's old. It's only maybe? been a year. Yeah. So the vision for dot LA was, um, that I returned to my hometown of Los Angeles after 20 years in the wild. You know, I was in New York for a couple of years earlier in my career. I was in San Francisco doing my first startup. And then I was in Seattle for 15 years running Zillow. And I came back to LA and it was very different than uh, if I had left it 20 something years earlier. You know, when I left, it was a, a one company town in the entertainment industry. And I came back and, and tech was this huge part of the economy. And uh, there were founders and entrepreneurs and angel investors and venture capitalists and late stage investors and unicorns and big public companies. And I mean, it was, it was a tech town. And yet there was nobody telling the story. I mean, there was no news service that was reporting on this and covering it. You know, TechCrunch mostly ignores LA. They cover the Bay Area primarily. Yep. The LA Times certainly doesn't focus on tech. And yep. then the entertainment industry trade publications like The Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety, they, they tend not to focus on tech either. And I saw in Seattle a publication called GeekWire, which has over the last 10 years played a really important role in the Seattle tech ecosystem and and actually contributed significantly to Zillow's success. And I know that might sound a little odd that like a little local tech news blog, which is basically what GeekWire is, you know, contributed to the success of a $40 billion company, but it did because Every time Zillow did something, we, we'd hire a new executive, we'd launch a new product, we'd expand to new office space, you know, whatever it was, 
GeekWire was there to report on it. And, and that steady drumbeat of local tech journalism provided um, just, it shined a light on what was happening at Zillow and it raised our profile significantly. And so I'm trying to do that in LA. I'm trying to, to shine on light on all the innovation and startups that are happening in Los Angeles by having .LA cover the LA tech community and, and Southern California at large, including Orange County down to San Diego. And uh, it's working. You know, we launched a year ago. We get a couple hundred thousand visitors a month. Um, so clearly the question of, does anybody care about what's happening in LA tech? That's been answered. I mean, yes. it, a lot of people do. <laughs> yes. um, the other question that, that some people had initially was, is there enough happening in LA tech to cover? And the answer is yes. We, we had 1,100 articles in the first year. And if we had a bigger staff, we could have done probably 10 times that. Every day we get you know, 30 to 50 article ideas and inbounds that we don't have time to cover. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's been great. Now, the business model has been upended just, by COVID. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to ask you, like bus, business model, startup, COVID. So it's, look, it's, a, it's news, news websites are always hard. The news business is hard. And, and right. the business model that we had going into this and for which we raised a $4 million seed round because we are a startup covering startups. We raised, we raised a round from venture capitalists and, and from, from me. The business model originally was events. And that was very on mission. It was like, look, we're going to cover the LA tech community yep. and we're going to bring people together in, you know, in these real world events to help them network and, and grow their businesses. And um, of course, COVID happened. And we pivoted quickly to, to virtual events very successfully. And we've had many dozens of virtual events with huge turnouts. They're a little harder to monetize than in-person events. So sure. it's, um, you know, it presents some business challenge, but, um, but the company is doing great, you know, and um, I'm really excited about its prospects and I'm, I'm really proud of the role that it's playing in the LA tech community. So uh, will we see a dot New York dot San Francisco dot Miami Phoenix, is everyone's my all Miami all the time. You know, I feel like, um, you know, I, we haven't decided yet. Um, there are, when we started the company, we that was always a possibility. And we decided, let's get LA right. Let's prove that there's an audience. Let's prove that there's content to cover. And let's prove there's a business model. I think we've proven, proven two of those three things. Um, and then we'll decide whether to expand to Miami, Austin, New York, et cetera. Um, uh, COVID is creating this diaspora out of the Bay Area. And it's empowering all these other cities, including Los right. Angeles, um, to, to have their moment, which is great. And, and so the need for this type of service in other cities is greater than ever, uh, but we're not quite ready to, to do that yet. So we'll yeah. see, maybe. I, uh, I talk to people all over the country and world as you do, and, and I liken .LA to like Skateboarder Magazine back in like the 70s, right? Like kids in DC sitting in snow, looking at photos of these legendary skateboarders riding in pools and having fun. And, and I'm talking to other friends that are just, you know, buddies of mine now in Dallas. I'm like, yeah, I'm an investor in this company and this is what they're doing. You should check them out. So for everybody out there, I'm an investor in .LA. Thank you, Spencer, for letting me in. And, and so I tell them about it and they're like, man, I'm reading it. It's like, it's like I'm living vicariously through all of these startups, right, happening in Los Angeles. And they're like, it's pretty inspiring, right? So it's true. I mean, that's so cool to hear because, um, uh, you know, as I say, the primary reason to, to start .LA, .LA is to cover LA tech for people that are here, but it is, it's really important also to spread the word. And, and again, right. GeekWire helped contribute you know, this. There are plenty of VCs in San Francisco yeah. that over the last 10 years read about Seattle companies through GeekWire 
and went and invested in them. And it kind of puts Seattle on the map in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I hope that LA will help put LA on the map. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited for it. So I got I have to ask you're, you're coming from taking Zillow public and then going to the board and then, uh, you know, stepping away and then going right into a startup, not just one, but multiple. So we'll get into all of them, but what was it, what was it like, you know, at your level, starting back down and having to raise capital, you know, do pitch meetings. I don't know if you did a lot of pitch meetings, but you, you like that, that experience. And then like, Hey, we have no revenue and I got to hire new people. Were you like on the phone recruiting? Were you looking at LinkedIn and spending Friday nights with a glass of wine and calling people and saying, I'm starting this new company. Like, what was that like for you? Well, so, I mean, I'm starting these companies with others, obviously. Yes. And, um, you know, there was actually just to, just to, Correct one thing because it's an it's an interesting part of the story. When I left Zillow, the first thing I did was I taught. I I called Harvard and said right. where, where I went, and I said, "Hey, I want to teach." That's and right. they said, and I called the provost's office. Literally, cold called the provost's office, and I got I managed to get the person on the phone who's like the assistant provost. And I was like, "Hey, I'm Spencer Askoff. I'm class of '97. I want to teach." And they're like, "He's like, okay." And they could like tell him he was googling me as as, as I'm talking. Yes. To him. He's click, like click, trying click, to click. figure out who I am. And he's like, well, what do you know? What can you teach? And I'm like, well, I know business and entrepreneurship. And he's like, okay, well, maybe you should teach that at the business school. I was like, great. Anyway, so I, I created a course called Managing Tech Ventures, which is basically how to run a big tech company. Yeah. And I taught it for a semester at HBS. And even I don't have an MBA. Um, and so I, I always kind of wanted to go to HBS, but I never did. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be able to teach there instead. And it was, it was awesome. It was a great experience. And for me, it helped me kind of codify and curate yeah. all these business lessons for my career. So that was like my palate cleanser. And then I decided to start something called 75 and Sunny Labs, which is my startup studio. And of course, 75 and Sunny, a nod to Los Angeles. Yeah. And, um, and so the first company that 75 and Sunny Labs launched was .LA with a great co-founder, um, Sam Adams, who also was um, Harvard and then Bloomberg. So similar, you know, similar start to his career too. And so Sam is the CEO of .LA and I'm chair. The second company to come out of 75 and Sunny Labs was Picasso, which yep. I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. And then I've got two others that are coming soon, Recon, and then a fourth one that I haven't announced yet. So I'm starting two companies a year through 75 and Sunny Labs, and then I'm angel investing through 75 and Sunny Ventures, which is my angel fund. Hey, it's Tom Ferry. Question, what's your favorite social media platform? Are you big on Insta? Do you love to tweet? No matter where you answer, I'd love for you to connect with me there. All you gotta do is just type in at Tom Ferry and follow and let's you and I connect. I wanna be able to deliver the right content, the right ideas, the ways to help you grow your business, stay fired up, keep moving, be in action and run plays that work in the platform that matters most to you. So subscribe and I'll see you there soon. So a bunch of people are going to ask, uh, you know, they're going to say, "Fair, you got to make sure you ask this question." So you're you're starting this lab, and and I, you know, you know, I'm a huge fan of this, right? Because it's a chance to see all these shiny, bright ideas and all these great faces. Are you creating them, or are you bringing people in and selecting and saying, "Let's go"? What what's your strategy for the lab? So there are four. So I have an N of four on on, on this one, and so. Um, you know, it's it's a combination. Uh, in the case of Dot LA, it was my idea, and mm -hmm. I found somebody I thought would be a good co-founder through my network, reached out to him cold, pitched him on it, recruited him as CEO, and we started it together. In the case of Picasso, uh, Austin and I were working on a lot of ideas and the yep. specific idea for Picasso he came up with. And, um, and I was, you know, ecstatic to, to help him 
uh, help him grow it. So it was his, his idea, but you know, we incubated it together. In the case of, of Recon, um, which is what I'm doing with my daughter, um, it was uh, originally my idea, but she made it a lot better. And she and I have been uh, working on it together for about six months and it'll get ready It'll launch in um, probably late February, early March. And in the case of the fourth one, um, I had the, the, this, this idea and I was talking with potential people about it, incubating it myself. And somebody said, oh, you need to talk to this person who's already working on the exact same idea. Yeah. And I kind of glommed on to him and we, we worked on it together. So sometimes it's my idea. Sometimes it's someone else. Sometimes it's both my idea and theirs. Um, and, um, uh, you know, there's, there's no one formula. It, it's right. It depends. The cool thing is that you've created this laboratory to, to help, help these companies get started, be on their way. And then of course you're providing value, capital, insight, leadership lessons. I mean, it's, it's fun. But Tell to us answer your, your bigger question of like, what's it like going from a 5,000 employee right. company to all of a sudden, like trying right. to figure out, I mean, literally I'm, I, I, <laughs> for, for. Like I have to figure out how to how to send a wire to pay a lawyer, and like yes. I haven't done that in a very long time. Or how do you set up payroll? Or um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like I have to file like a tax return for these startups, which I haven't you know ever done. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's a little weird. It's a little <laughs> weird. You know, the, there there are pros and cons. I mean, the, the thing I loved about about running a giant company was the resources at your disposal. Yes. I mean, at Zillow, we'd come up with idea <clears throat> an idea internally. And I'd be like, that's a good idea. Let's throw 10 people at it. And you know, here's a $3 million budget, like go. Yeah, go. And that's amazing. And then if it's working, you're like, okay, here's 500 people and a $50 million budget go, yes. or let's go buy a $500 million company like Showing Time. Yeah. You know, that's amazing having those types of resources at your disposal. A startup obviously doesn't have that, but there are other advantages uh, to being so early stage. Obviously you can yeah. move very quickly and, um, uh, it's, you know, it's liberating in a lot of ways. I agree. I agree. I mean, my only experience with that was you know, helping my dad run his business, build that thing up and then leaving and starting over and literally saying, I have a little bit of money and I got, you know, a small little team of people that I got together. We rented some space. There is something fun about that startup vibe of just everybody's in it, especially if you, you have the right people, you got the right methodologies, everybody's aligned in terms of comp and it's just like, let's go take over the world. There is just some fun in that. So, so now you've got it with your daughter. So you got to, what's the scoop on recon? Like what, what's the story here? I mean, you, you, you had me at daughter. <laughs> so, um, I haven't, I don't know what I'm announced. I guess I'll just sort of tell you about it, but, um, so, so you can learn more at getrecon.app. Um, and, um, what I'm trying to do with recon is fix social media. Um, you know, social media has gotten pretty toxic and yeah. unpleasant and it's, you know, in your Instagram and, and your Facebook, it's probably a, a lot of people yelling at each other about stuff and political and just divisive and partisan. And, um, one of the things that's unifying is food. Uh, most people love food and yeah. food's fun and food's happy. Yeah. And um, so what I'm doing with recon, which means reconnect or reconnaissance is I'm trying to create essentially a food-based social network where um, we can try to unite around a shared interest and love of food, whether it be at restaurants or, or home cooking. And um, it, uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, the, the, you know, the beta app, it's, it's still behind a, behind a wall, but it 
connects to your photos and automatically pulls out the photos from your camera roll of food of all the restaurants that you've been to and all the food you've taken, food photos you've taken at home or, or out. And if I become friends with you, I can now see all your food photos and vice versa. And it prompts you with ratings and reviews and, and so typical social feedback loops around um, celebrating food and living a more enriched life. So it's, um, it's, it's been, a, I, you know, we'll see where it goes. Who knows if this will be a, yeah. become a very successful company or not, but um, you know, the product is in, is in a very early stage and I think it's a really neat idea and it's better for you than Instagram. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, how old is your daughter? She's 15. She's 15. And how long ago did she come up with this idea? Or was it a mutual, like, um, so, so the original idea, so she made the idea much, much better. I mean, she actually pushed it more towards trying to fix what's wrong with social media. I approached yeah. it more from a business standpoint of trying to fix what's wrong with TripAdvisor or Yelp. Right. You know, what's wrong with TripAdvisor yeah. or Yelp is that they're not social. Right. That, you know, Yelp shows me the average of, of 10,000 random people of what yes. restaurant I should eat at in Los Angeles. I don't care that, you know, I, yeah. I care what restaurant my 10 friends have eaten at in Los Angeles. Exactly. Um, so I approach, you know, that's, that was my first swing at this was try to build a more social uh, restaurant uh, discovery service. And it's interesting. I mean, her, her lens, her frame of reference is, you know, is like, look social is broken and it sucks and it makes me sad. It makes me feel bad about myself yes. <laughs> and yes. it makes my friends feel bad about themselves. So anyway, so, so it's, um, it, you know, it's a good example where uh, two co-founders diversity among co-founders, even though we live under the same roof, yes. we have a very different lens in the world and the diversity of how we approach the, you know, the same concept um, resulted in what I think will be a better product. Thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So, so before we talk about your deal with, uh, with Austin, t tell us about your spec. And I, I'm, I'm going back to, you said, you know, uh, great people, right. The right motivation. And at the very end it was shareholder, but my understanding of spec is that that might've just been reversed Maybe, for the people that don't know what a spec is. Will you share that first? And first of all, I have to plug my second podcast, Tom. So I have two podcasts. I have Office Hours where I interview luminaries. Yes. And I have another podcast called Dad, I Have a Question, where my 10-year-old son right. and I, actually, he was 10 when we started. He's now 12-year-old son and I um, discuss something. So he asked me a question. And so there's an episode called Dad, What is a SPAC? Yes. And he asked me, what's a SPAC? And we just, I explained it to him and, and, and we discuss it. And, you know, look, if you can explain something to a, a kid, then mm -hmm. you really understand it. So yes. you can hear me explain to him what is inflation, how do banks work, what does the Fed do, you know, what's a constitutional amendment, et cetera. And, uh, and in, in there is what is a SPAC. But anyway, for your listeners, a SPAC is basically a shell company. You take a, a company public, and I have one of these, it's called Supernova. And uh, Supernova One went public about four or five months ago. We, we raised $400 million in the IPO. And so this company has only one asset, which is $400 million in the bank. And that's it. <laughs> um, there's no operating business. There are no employees. There are four, you know, a couple of directors and, and really no employees. And the purpose of this company is to find a private company, privately held company, <clears throat> to merge into it. And when that private company merges into it, that private company becomes public you know, immediately. Yep. 
And then typically the name of the company changes uh, to, to the name of the private company. So Opendoor in our, in our space of real estate is a good example of this. Opendoor yep. went public via SPAC, meaning it merged into an existing public company. And all of a sudden, Opendoor went from being privately held to publicly traded. The advantages are, are many. Um, the advantages to the private company. Uh, number one, it's very quick. Opendoor was yes. able to go public in a couple of weeks instead of Zillow went public in a traditional pattern at the path that took about a year. Um, number two, you can give projections, financial projections in a SPAC merger. So Opendoor, for example, was able to publish yep. um, what they expected to do um, for the next five or so years. When Zillow went public, the traditional path, you can't share projections. No. And so that's why you see a lot of these high growth companies like electric vehicle companies or, um, uh, you know, um, I buying companies go public through SPAC because they benefit from being able to publish projections. Um, but the biggest benefit, and it comes back to your question, Tom, about, you know, that chain I described starting with people, the biggest thing that SPACs provide is sponsorship and counsel for the private company or good SPACs, I should say, because yes. bad SPACs don't. Bad SPACs are just no. a financial arbitrage right. where they're just a shell company that takes a, a, a private company public. A good SPAC can fill a, an important hole in the capital stack. So, so let's take go back to the beginning and think of a startup, right? When a startup raises money or when a startup starts, maybe in a startup studio like mine, or they raise money from angel investors, the investors at that stage add a certain type of value in that very early stage. Then maybe they raise money from a, a venture capital firm in the series A, series B range. And that venture capital firm adds value, not just cash, but, but, but counsel. Then maybe they raise a growth round from, you know, Tiger Global or DST or KOTU or some of these names that you might have heard of, and, and they add a different type of value and capital. Mm -hmm. Well, what SPACs aim to do is, is help private companies find their footing as they go public, because those first couple months and year or two post-IPO are tricky. Like a yes. lot of companies stumble, F Facebook stumbled, Snapchat stumbled. Right. Right. And if there's somebody like me that's in your ear <laughs> during that, it can be yeah. very valuable to the management team to, to find their footing as they go public. So, so to me, the reason I'm doing SPACs is I want to play that role. I want to help a private company get off to the right foot and, and achieve its, what it's seeking for those first couple of years post IPO. To me, it's all, it's, it's related to my whole spiel of mentoring and, and coaching. Yes. And I mean, I'm a yep. coach, I'm a publisher, I podcast, I teach like, and that's what this is, is I'm, I want to teach them. I teach early stage founders through my startup studio on my angel investing. And I, I coach and teach late stage founders through my SPACs. I love the, just the connection from startup all the way through. So thank you for sharing that. So speaking of, what did you think about uh, Porch? I was an early investor in Porch, not early, but I was B or C, whatever round. I mean, I'm friends with Matt and yeah. um, Matt Ehrlichman, you know, is a great entrepreneur and founder. And I was super happy to, um, you know, to, to see them succeed. And, and they're a perfect example where they're a great SPAC, right? They, right. They, they went public through a SPAC merger at six or $700 million market cap. They got more visibility from being public. Their yep. early investors got, you know, got liquidity. So yep. uh, by being public, they um, they now have currency and they quickly did five acquisitions in just the yes. first couple months because they yep. have access to capital and access to public stock. And they're now one and a half billion dollar company. And they never could be, have done that without having gone public through a SPAC merger. So, um, you know, they're a great case study. So SPACs have been around for... Five long years, time, 20, years? no, no, a long time, 20, 20 something years. They just haven't been in vogue, you know, for the, yeah. for 18 of the last 20 years, they were like the redheaded stepchild of financial sure. markets. They were just like 
super in the shadows, like kind of murky and, you know, only companies that couldn't go public the traditional way would go public via SPAC. Everything changed a couple of years ago with, uh, with a couple big deals. So Virgin Galactic was one of the first, yeah. um, uh, DraftKings was a big one. Open door was also a big one. And now you see great companies like 23 and me, um, yes. you know, or, um, or porch the companies that, you know, that, that, I mean, 23andMe and Opendoor could have gone public the traditional path. They're choosing to go public through the sponsored IPO for the reasons I described. Um, and so it's been a big sea change in, in terms of acceptability and, and um, you know, comfort and embracing this, this financial product in the part of venture capitalists and founders in the last couple of years. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, so many people are nervous right now. You know, we're watching just the, the waves of money coming into the U.S. from the government. 1.9, you know, what, what Trump had already done, these trillions of dollars, inflation, all these things that maybe you've been discussing with your 10-year-old. So, so, you know, if we're 11 years into a bull market on the residential housing side, right, come 2010 to today or maybe a little before, what's your take on the future of, uh, let's just call it the economy, going super macro, and then a little more micro, just real estate? So what happened was coming out of the 2008 recession, the government lowered globally, actually, the mm -hmm. global governments lowered interest rates so, 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 so low to try to restart economic growth. Yep. And yes, we do talk about this in my, in my dad, I have a question podcast, which is when investors can't earn good, you know, good rates of return through by, by loaning money out or by investing in bonds because interest rates are so low, what do they do? They seek higher returns through higher risk. And so it's created this asset bubble in equities, in Bitcoin, in real mm -hmm. estate, in you know, every other asset class because investors you know, in venture capital, they've, they've moved out the risk curve, meaning that they're, they're chasing risk. They're willing to say, sure, this startup is worth $500 million yeah. you know, because like, I have nowhere else to invest where I can earn a return. So I might as well take a bigger risk and hope for a bigger reward. Um, and um, you know, how does it end? Uh, who knows? Um, it probably doesn't end well. It didn't end well in 2008. It didn't end well in 2001. 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it didn't end well in 1999. Um, uh, you know, I guess there is a, a difference, which is a lot of the companies today, a lot of the tech companies today that have big valuations, they do have good businesses, or at least they have businesses. I mean, when you see like a DoorDash yes. or an Airbnb at 100 billion something market cap, like it's quite different than companies in 1999 that <clears throat> maybe had a 50 billion or 100 billion dollar market cap and, and were nothing. They were just air. Like yeah. These are actual businesses that, that have profits and, and awareness and usage. Um, but, you know, they, they could still be overvalued pretty significantly. Um, who knows? I don't know. I mean, Personally, um, I am a beneficiary of this of this frothiness on the startup side when I'm starting right. companies, and yet I'm a whatever the opposite of a beneficiary is. I'm a you know I'm on the other side of that on the SPAC side when you know when I'm an investor when I'm buying companies or investing in companies, um, you know I I'm paying higher prices than I'd want to. So I I don't know. Um, it's a it's a weird time. It's definitely a weird time. It is. It is. I, it's interesting, you know, um, I was sitting at dinner a couple of nights ago with the former uh, CEO of American Airlines, Don Carty, and, you know, someone that's, you know, in their 70s who's seen a few more decades of all of this. And yet 
you know, here's a guy that is investing in company. Ferry, I'm doing this deal and you should get involved. And oh my God, you know, like, right. And I'm, I'm feeding on his energy. But again, I, I asked him kind of the same question. He said, <laughs> yes, one thing I never get to call, you know, Ferry, you need to pick up your energy. I never really get that. But, but you know, you know me, like I spend time with, I, I'm blessed that I get to meet people like you and Don and so many others. And then, and I do, I feed on that energy, but he had kind of the same opinion. Like the, the market is absolutely extraordinary right now. There will be a yin to this yang. And he said, and then there'll be another one and another one and another one. And if you just keep playing the long game, you're going to be fine. And I'm like, good, good advice. So, so let's, let's switch gears. I actually wrote down, um, let, let's talk about, uh, Picasso. Let's talk about Austin and, and this deal. Like this is a, maybe explain what the company is. I actually had Austin on a, a Facebook live and we told everybody about it, but everybody is not everybody in the world of podcasts. So, so give them the scoop. Um, and I, I, my, you know, I've been fortunate and successful and, and I have a second home and it's impactful. And actually when I was a kid, I, my parents had a second home and anyone who's ever had a second home knows that it's awesome. Like that's where you can be your best self. That's where you yeah. can be the type of husband you want to be, the type of father you want to be, the type of kid you want to be. Yeah. And there's just something about being in that environment it's like superman's fortress of solitude it's like yeah. you know you can just recharge there and yet it's pretty much only accessible to the one percent and what we're aiming to do at picasso is democratize access to second home ownership so that many more people can experience the joys of having a second home and so what we have done is we've created a new category of home ownership which is co-ownership Picasso lets you buy an eighth of a home. You can buy two eighths or three eighths or, or some other fraction, but um, you know, and all of a sudden people that maybe couldn't have afforded or, or couldn't rationalize to buy, you know, all of that million dollar vacation home can now get it for an eighth of the price. And um, uh, that's what we're doing. We have an incredible team. The company is growing very, very quickly. Um, we've been enriching many, many homeowners lives. We sold lots of these already. Uh, for a real estate agent, um, it works great. You know, if there are tons of off-market homes that uh, that maybe you've sold a vacation home to somebody and you know they don't use it fully, or you know they they Airbnb it out some of the time, and that's a pain in the neck and and yeah. really puts wear and tear on the home and isn't great for the homeowner. Well, you, there's something that we call a sell-down use case where an existing homeowner can sell off a portion of their vacation home. So maybe they sell two eighths or three eighths of their home and they turn it into a Picasso and now they've gained a bunch of liquidity and now they're sharing the ongoing costs of, of, co -own, of home ownership with others in their Picasso. Um, so real estate agents can benefit from finding inventory in that way for us. And then we also pay full commissions on both sides of the transaction for you know buyers that are represented. Um, it's a great way to get a fence sitter off the fence. You know, plenty of your, of your, yep of your coaching clients or podcast listeners, Tom, have clients, you know, that are perennial tire kickers that, you know, every time they come to Tahoe or Napa or Santa right. Barbara, they want to go see houses and yep. they email you all the time, but they never get off the fence on that $4 million house. Well, guess what? You should call them and say, now it's 500,000, not 4 million, you know, yeah. time to get off the fence. You're only going to buy an eighth of this house, but you know, and, and Picasso can help with that. Have you seen that it works? Um, is it, is it, better in certain markets are you in every market you know we're is it in, a good uh, nantucket no, move about, or is it yeah. yeah go ahead so we're in about five markets now um napa tahoe 
Palm Springs, uh, Los Angeles are the, are the markets that we're most focused on right now. Um, you know, it's, it works very, very well in vacation destination markets because why, because, you know, most people aren't able to use that home yeah. more than, you know, owning an eighth is, is six weeks a year. Yeah. Um, you know, even if, if you buy two eighths, most people can't go to a second home 12, more than 12 weeks a year. So it works very well there. I think it will also work for a certain type of home buyer in urban markets. So you think of like a San Francisco knowledge worker, right. um, who maybe, you know, now because they're able to work remotely, um, you know, they don't have to be in San Francisco all the time. And instead of renting a 700 square foot apartment for $3,000, they can now own an eighth of a house in San Francisco or in Seattle or Los Angeles. Um, or, or think about luxury development in New York, you know, maybe yes. people thought about buying a, you know, a place in Manhattan, but does it really make sense to buy a $3 million, you know, thousand square foot apartment? Well, no, but maybe buying an eighth of it does. And so, um, you know, we're, we're already working with home builders and soon to be working with luxury condo developers as well about turning their inventory into Picasso's. We've seen this model in, in, in other product lines, SKUs. So to me, when you, when you, when you guys came with this idea, I was like, yes, that makes sense. We, my wife and I, 15 years ago, were looking at a house in uh, in Mexico and we're like, oh, we should do this. And we had ho owned a home in Palm Desert and we realized, yeah, we were really only there about 12 weeks a year. So the rest of the time it's at, you know, with all the payments and everything else going and they're like, we should buy this place in Mexico. And I turned to her and said, so we can replicate the same problem again. Like, I'm, I'm not sure if I want to do that. And we stumbled into the Four Seasons in Putsumita and they were selling these like fractional deals. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. So is it as easy as that? Or is it a complicated transaction if you're the agent or the consumer? It's pretty easy right now. We aim to make it even easier. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you can buy a hundred and something thousand dollar Tesla on your phone in 60 right. seconds. Yep. You ought to be able, and someday soon you will be able to buy a hundred or $200,000 eighth of a home in Cabo or in Napa on your phone through Picasso. I love um, it. So, you know, today it's a little bit harder than that, but yeah, in the near future, it won't be good. Hey, let's, uh, let's wrap. I said to you before we started this, that it's an anything goes, um, your father, God bless him, an absolute legend. Uh, you once told me a story that, that had me have so much more appreciation for you right? Understanding this because you hear, you know, Harvard and, you know, all these, all this success and Zillow and yada, yada, yada. And then we're sitting here and you actually told my wife the story the, the second time, but would you mind, would you mind sharing a little bit about, you know, what your dad did and how that impacted you? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, my dad was a great entrepreneur. He was originally an accountant. Um, you know, he grew up, um, an Orthodox Jew in uh, Brooklyn and, um, went to Penn undergrad, went to Wharton undergrad, and then became an accountant. And everything was kind of going in that direction. And he was the youngest partner at the accounting firm in 1972, before I was born. And he was in the restroom at his firm. It was one of the big eight accounting firms. And the gentleman next to him washing his hands was kind of grumbling under his breath, like, oh, I'm so mad at this firm. You know, this is the worst accounting firm in, in New York. My dad says, you know, what's the problem? The guy says, um, you know, I'm Prince Rupert Lowenstein and I'm the manager of the Rolling Stones. And I, I flew here from London to have your firm audit our tour. 
and your stupid firm said they wouldn't do it because the Rolling Stones are a bunch of drug addicts and they throw TVs out of windows and, you know, and, and, and you don't want to associate with, with uh, Neanderthals like that. And my dad, uh, not out of interest, you know, not out of interest in music or anything like that, purely out of interest in like business entrepreneurship on the spot said, I'm in, I will do it. Um, and so yeah. he left the firm again, he, my dad's like the, was like the least musically interested person there ever was. So it was purely the sense of business adventure. And he was the, basically the controller on that 1972 Rolling Stones European tour. And then he started a business based on that. And so he became the business manager and tour producer for the Rolling Stones, U2, David Bowie, Paul Simon, Pink Floyd, uh, Leonard Skinner, 38 Special, um, Elvis Presley, you name it. And, um, and so I grew up, you know, learning from him, going on tours every summer with the Stones and U2. Um, and as he became a tour producer, it became even more interesting. And I, I can't remember exactly what story I told you, Tom, but in particular, he was at the forefront of some huge innovations in the concert industry, which we as concert goers, right. um, you know, we, we experience every day. So for example, um, the, the concept of an artist in residence, you know, we take that for granted today. Okay. Britney Spears yes. is in Celine Dion. They're going to be in Las Vegas or the chain smokers in Las Vegas or wherever for, you know, a year at a time. He, he tried that with Simon and Garfunkel. He, he got them to make kiss and make up and reunited them for 30 shows in a row at the Paramount theater at Madison square garden. in I think it was 1988 and they hadn't toured together in, I don't know, hadn't even talked to each other in five or more years. And that was considered crazy at the time. And so sure. he was the producer of that. And people were like, what? there won't be demand. Like typically you play one time in a city and then you move on. And, and that artist in resonance concept he really created. Then he and his partner, um, created the Bowie bonds where David Bowie sold off a portion of his record catalog yeah. uh, to securitize it, to get a lump sum payment up front. And everybody does that today. I mean, it's like, that is very, very normal. And then these 360 tours, he, he really created them with the Rolling Stones. So prior to 1989 to the, the Rolling Stones, um, oh gosh, what was it? Voodoo Lounge or I forget what the name of that tour was. But anyway, prior to the um, Steel Wheels tour, the Steel Wheels tour in 1989, the way tours worked were the band put up the money and the band got the profits. And so tours were, were small, you know, small potatoes. And in 1989, he and his partners went and raised a couple hundred million of what we would call today venture capital and basically bought the tour and all of a sudden flipped it on its head. And the band really worked for the producers, um, much more like the way a movie uh, actor sure. works for the production company. Imagine if, if the actors and actresses owned the movies, that, like, that doesn't make sense really. And, and so they made touring much more like movies. And that's why today we have these monster tours that you right. know, have thousand dollar ticket prices and, you know, but incredible spectacles is because touring was turned on its head with these, these 360 deals that, that he really created. Um, and then I guess I'll give you one last one. Um, the Elvis Presley estate today earns more in a year than it did in all of Elvis's lifetime through licensing, through Graceland visits, yep. through, you know, everything for merchandising. And he and his team really built that with Elvis. Um, and, um, and, and today, every artist from Tupac Shakur to, you know, you name it. I mean, pe Michael Jackson, people are worth more dead than they are alive. And uh, that wouldn't have been possible were it not for Elvis and, and the innovations that my dad brought to the Elvis estate. Um, so it was amazing watching all right. that. Um, right. And I always wanted to go into business with him. And I don't know if I told you this part of the story or not, but he always said no. Um, he never, he 
was adamantly opposed to nepotism. He said, we'll pay for your education, whatever the best schools are that you get into. You want to go to grad school, undergrad, law school, business school, whatever, we'll pay for it all. And you'll have no debt. And then you're on your own. Yeah. And my parents never gave me a dime. You know, they never gave me anything. They paid for my education, but they never, you know, never loaned me money, never gave me money. Um, and, um, you know, and he wouldn't let me go into business with them. He said, go chart your own course. Um, so that's, you know, I grew up affluent, but I think whatever grit I have inside of me and whatever chip I have in my shoulder, both of which are really important personality traits for founders, um, was developed because they didn't really give me anything except an education. Um, and, um, and a lot of great lessons that I learned from him. Thank you so much for sharing that. I almost wish I would have asked you this question first, because I think it would, you know, for the person listening right now, they're like, yeah, because it just, again, as I said to you, when you first told me this story, and then later seeing you um, present sort of a version of, you know, you know, talking about your father at a, at a conference, I think everybody was like, oh, now I, like it just it helps us understand you more. So thank you for sharing that. And by the way, you know that David Bowie is a part of the holy trifecta for me. So David Bowie, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed. Like, I think I have every record record record, ladies and gentlemen that are listening record on my Macintosh turntable at my home in Dallas. Um, so as soon as you said David Bowie, like my interest level, I remember the first time you told me went even higher. So Spence, as we, as we wrap this up, um, I know we're both crazy busy. Um, you know, I'm looking at Brenda, my podcast producer. We finally did it. My March 19th. <laughs> it wasn't in person, but done. it still was fun. Yeah. Uh, but I'm we see in person what she's done last year. So, so. <laughs> yeah. So, so Spence, if, if they, they wanted, wanted to reach you, best way to, best way to get you probably on Twitter would be my guess. Uh, sure. You can, you know, you can tweet at me or Spencer at Picasso. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com or Spencer at D-O-T period L-A. Um, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> I Thanks for having it. me, Tom. It's yeah. been great discussing everything with you. Thanks so much, man. And I can't wait to read the book. We'll do another podcast later when the book comes out. Count on it. Thank you. Take care. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening or for watching. Uh, as always, write a review, make a comment, definitely follow Spencer, reach out to me if you're an agent, see if you can get a part of that uh, Picasso opportunity, if that makes sense for you. All right, guys, take care. If you want more information about this episode, including my show notes, mentions, links, and everything else, make sure you visit tomferry.com slash podcast. That's tomferry.com slash podcast. Thanks again and talk to you soon.